Welcome to the latest episode of Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver. And with me today, all the way from Belfast, I have uh, technologist David Anderson. Welcome to the program, David. Hi, Ryan. Nice to be here. Thank you. Cool. Well, David, uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a, a kind of architect and a technologist. I've been working in software for ooh, but, but 25 years. Um, I started working telecoms for about 10 years, and then I've been working with um, Liberty Mutual for this last 14 years. And I've spent a lot of time doing kind of big kind of cloud adoption, um, cloud architecture, engineering excellence, those type of things. And um, currently, my kind of focus is on um, just really sort of um, helping companies kind of move forward in the cloud. Oh, cool. Well, that's where our paths crossed here, but a couple of years back. And I remember thinking that um, of all the people I'd spoken to, you seemed to sort of get it. You, you got it between, you know what I mean by that is it, between the technology, between the methodology, between how people work. And so, you know, maybe you can tell our audience, like when you, you, you solve sort of kind of complex technical problems, but also sort of some teams and organizations, like what's your approach? Like how would you sort of define your approach to problem solving? Well, I think it's it's really straightforward. Um, for me, the first thing is just listen and think. You know, I think you got to listen to the problem and kind of see see what's happening. And for me, I'm quite kind of visual. Um, I like to kind of sketch something that's visual. But really, the it really starts with the collaboration. I think for me, every in companies and software, it all starts with the team. Um, I often think that when we start looking at individuals and, and what they can do, it's really about what the team can do. So it's, it's always best to have a, a team-based approach. And I find that is um, super important. And the longer I've worked in engineering and software, you kind of see it's great teams produce great software and solve, and solve problems. That That's always the way. And I have quite a few techniques, which we, we can get into about, about how you actually do that. Well, yeah, well, well, maybe tell us a bit about in, in, in your sort of previous role and really in the last you know, part of your career, what types of problems would you help teams sort of solve? I mean, you mentioned sort of cloud adoption and you were involved in the serverless um, sort of space. Talk to me a bit about some of the problems that you sort of helped teams solve. There's probably, there's there's a few, that, that there's there's a specific technique that we've been using this past maybe five or six years, which 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 led us to serverless and serverless first. And it's called Wardorly mapping, mm-hmm. which is a way of mapping out a strategy. And really the whole premise of orderly mapping is that when you look at the different components in your in your technical stack, uh, you can look at the evolution of those from genesis, like something's brand new, to custom build, to product, to commodity. And you can start to kind of map out where certain components are. And it's very easy when you do that to actually say, we're spending an awful lot of time on this component here that we've built but it's actually a commodity. We should just go and rent it from Amazon or something like that. There's no point us building this. And so that kind of lens really kind of helps teams. And, you know, for, for many companies, your line of business isn't really building software. It's it's creating value differentiated components. So if you can actually different, split that between the things you should rent and the things you should build, you know, for an insurance company, no one's really going to build your specific customer experience for you. But you can go and get some compute from 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 a vendor. So really, it's about when you sit down with the team and, and go through that exercise, it becomes very clear where you need to um, point your efforts to. Yeah, what's interesting, I've been digging into the domain-driven design. In fact, Nick Toom was on the yep. program about a week ago, um, and wow. uh, yeah, yeah. And so we talked about sort of the core, um, you know, supporting and sort of the generic domains and really thinking about those. It sounds like it's very similar. He mentioned wordly mapping too. I haven't yet dug into it, but it sounds like we're at some similar concepts there. Yeah. 
Yeah, Nick Tune. Nick, Nick Tune's awesome. I'm a big, big fan of Nick Tune. Um, though, th- th- there's there's massive crossover between the domain-driven design, worldly mapping, and it's really about you know um, you got to look at technology differently. You, you can't. There's certain problems you can't code your way out of. You need the kind of organizational approach, and 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 often there's so much detail in the technical stack that people can't actually see it. So by using yeah. the techniques which, which Nick is, is, is awesome at, you can actually lay the different domains and then take a more kind of systemic approach. And it's really, it links to good architecture as well. Yeah. And especially when you're going to public cloud, you can't afford to make architectural mistakes because they are extremely costly. Uh, on-prem, you can get away with some things, not on public cloud. You know, it's interesting because a lot of folks that when they do the initial cloud adoption, they kind of recreate their data center. And they're typically the same people who built their data center are the same people who typically build out the cloud. And the thing I've been learning a lot more is take domain-driven design and apply it to how you think about your cloud environment, as opposed to thinking about physical racks and servers and environments. Use a domain-driven approach. Like, what are your what are your bounded context? I mean, there's a reason this program's named that. Like, it's a bit of a nod yeah. to sort of what are your different contexts and domains? And then can we use those to think about how we organize our systems and our teams? And then to your point, what's what's core to us versus what's more you know, supporting and generic we should sort of rent or, or buy? Yeah, I, must, I spent an awful lot of time trying to work out domains. And one of the big mistakes you see some companies making is say, you know, um, I'm the director over this area. This is all my stuff. And then someone else is the director. And then there's a reorg and the architecture is yeah. broken. So it's kind of like, you know, Conway's law, reverse Conway's law. So um, you need to be really careful about um, not creating your domains with current company structures because, you know, uh, domains usually stick around for a long time and the companies always reorg. It's just a, it's a natural occurrence. No, I couldn't say it better. You know, all the examples you typically see is there's like a, you know, a department-oriented sort of way of organizing your cloud. And then every company I work with, about every, you know, six months, there's going to be a good old-fashioned reorg, whether there's one needed or not. You know, somebody decided to reorg, and then it upsets everything. And, you know, you're right. If you tie it more to sort of your business model in your business domain, that something's going to be a bit more long-lasting, um, presumably, yeah. than sort of your, totally. your work structure. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, the thing is, I mean, and that's really the, the point back to serverless because – when a lot of people hear the term serverless or serverless first, they think about, oh, it's just the next type of compute. It's Docker, it's Kubernetes, and then it's serverless. And that, you know, that's kind of missing the point. If you sit and do your domain-driven design properly, you use something like Wardly Map and you realize what's what's important. And then if the team are have a serverless first mindset, then they can write software really quickly to meet the business KPI. And the business KPI should be associated with the domain. We've got to make this cheaper. We've got to make this faster. We've got to have more sales. Whatever it is, that's what the team focus on. And they don't spend time with you know, what we always call undifferentiated heavy lifting, building mm-hmm. things that are of no intrinsic value to that business goal. So that's where the service first mindset comes in. You know, um, we need an eventing framework to you know fire events to keep the sales. Pro- okay, let's just use one. Don't build an eventing framework. You know, um, so that that is a, a very important part of that kind of service first mindset is that you're chasing a business goal, and and everything else you're kind of trying to offload as quickly as possible. You know, when you work with engineers, I've noticed in my career, some sort of gravitate towards, once they're introduced to these ideas, some gravitate, and some just don't ever, they just love the the tech and the tools. You know, have you seen yeah. either attributes or certain things that, or how, how have you helped engineers who may have been very tech and tool code focused, 
like start to see the benefits of, of sort of this higher level thinking? Yeah, well, there's there's actually there's there's two um, there's two really interesting models that that I, I can just touch on um, that are uh, they're, they're both complementary. The first one is is by Simon Wardley, and there's a few other versions of this model as well. And he calls it pioneers, settlers, and town planners. Don't know if you've heard this before. So the the pioneers are the people who love to build new stuff, love the unknown. It's never been done before. I wonder if it's even going to work. This is just it's out there. So pioneers love that kind of you know that real challenge. The settlers, once some value has been found, they'll then productize that, make that something that can sell and grow the market. It's that kind of expansion, that scale. And then the town planners will you know, make it fast, make it reliable, and make it cheap. They can really settle that in. And all three groups are equally as important, but they have slightly different skill sets. And they're all very technical, but a slight different focus. So there's that mindset. I think uh, Kent Beck also has a version of that in his 3X model, explore, expand, and extract. So there's a few different um, models like that. So first of all, there, there's that three model, which which I think is really interesting, pioneer settlers, town planners. And then the second model to talk about is um, team topologies. Which is for certain teams, there's four types of teams. There's a stream aligned team, which are focused on a value stream. There's a complex kind of problem team, which are maybe solving something very specific. There's an enabling team who help other teams. And then there's a platform team, which are kind of building that platform for some of the either value or complex teams. I think once you start to organize your teams in that way, you can assign engineers with that appropriate mindset, either pioneer, settler, or town planner, to the correct team. And I find a great success when I'm speaking to teams. As you saw, you might ask a team, okay, what's your goal? And say, well, we're building a product and we're building a platform and we're helping those other guys. Okay, okay well, that's three things. <laughs> you need to pick one, you know? So I think it's given the team focus of what their main goal is and, and, and trying to coach them not to get distracted by side tasks and secondary goals. And then that the team can get aligned by that. And then if you've got a rock star coder or, you know, somebody who's really good at, you know, at, at coaching the team or, you know, different attributes, they can combine to create that good team. That's why I think that the team element is so important. No, it's, and that's something I've been picking up, picking up recently is the different, the, the different types of archetypes of the different types of teams like you described and how you think about not only organizing, but their focus. I think that's been the yeah. last few years I've picked up that, but I see that a lot of my company, a lot of my customers these days, are in platform building mode, what, what I call it. Yeah. They, they're in the they're they're building platforms, right? And then they have to have teams that help others get on the platform, you know, on board and those sort of things. And, and a lot of times, the same team tries to kind of do both of those things. They they try to build it and keep it running, and try to yeah. get everybody on board. And they're constantly sort of stressed between building out some capabilities and onboarding and helping others. So. Yeah, and again, the, the definition of that platform is so important. Again, bring it back to service first. You have a team who might say, or a business who might say, like, okay, we, we need a bill paying functionality or payments. Let's let's look at the market. Okay, let's build our own platform. We think that's a good idea and, and a huge investment. And eventually you could say, well, if you're a real service first mindset, what about just using Stripe? Because <laughs> <Do you know? laughs> I mean, if it's like, if it's 90%, 98% there, 
you know, is that extra 2% worth that huge investment of standing up a platform team and supporting it forever? You know, so there's a real kind of um, return on investment conversation there. Um, so, I mean, I think I think it's great that companies build platforms, but I would be very deliberate about building that platform and be very sure that it is something that's unique and not just maybe, you know, slightly better than, than what you can buy for um, um, pay-per-use. Yeah, something in that kind of core domain. If it's in the core domain, maybe it's something you consider a platform, but certainly generic. And I don't know about supporting. Yeah, you probably want to wear by. So yeah, you mentioned Simon Wardley. You mentioned Kit Beck. Who've been some of your other influencers um, along the way? That's a great question. Um, so a few people. There was one um, writer who wrote a lot, a lot of work in the eighties called Jerry Weinberg. Yeah, he wrote a book called The Secrets of Consulting, which I remember reading it when I was a younger software engineer and just been blown away by the common sense and simplicity. But, you know, because a lot of the, the, the environment back then, people were deeply technical. It was all about code and really kind of low level Unix stuff. And for somebody to just come along and say, just talk to the customer and find out what they need. Just listen to them. Ask an open question. <laughs> you know, and if someone's irate about something being late, you know, don't argue with them. Just say, well, why why are they so irate? Did we set a body? You know, did we set expectation incorrectly? So there, the, he he really dug into the people side of software, which I think is incredibly important, and that's something that's always kind of stuck with me. Um, his approach, and then that really he was one of the, the big kind of precursors of agile. So I think Jerry Weinberg has always been a huge influence. Um, I love the work of Marty Kagan. He's from the Silicon Valley product group. Yeah. I think um, product as a, as a term has really taken off this past maybe, I don't know, five, six years. But I started looking at Marty Kagan's work many, many years ago. And I always remember seeing a, a presentation he did. We talks about agile and, um, you know, sprints and making sprints and agile more effective. He talks about, you know, sprint zero and sprint one and, and this kind of, you know, and then he says, what about everything before the decision making? When you say, well, let's build a thing and all that slow decision making, it could take 12 months. And then you're like, boom, you can build it in a week. So he, I think he is a brilliant kind of very um, commercial approach to software development. And then finally, um, Mary Poppendick, who wrote a lot of the early lean software development stuff. I think Mary is, is, is brilliant. She's just, it's the way she describes extre extremely complex areas in a very simplistic way, I think is, I think is incredible. So one thing is probably common with the three of those is they're all brilliant communicators, which I think is yeah. very important for software. Yeah, it's, you mentioned Jerry Weinberg. I remember that book. And I think Tom DeMarco was another one that I discovered yeah. early on who sort of really, Slack. Yeah, 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 Slack. And, um, and well, Waltzing with Bears came later. Slack was good. Um, um, Oh, what was his original one? It's going to kill me. But um, anyway, no, I really got a lot from him. And uh, it is funny when you see sort of the agile. You mentioned Mary and Lean. You know, she brought that sort of lean background. She had a kind of lean manufacturing background, and she helped bring it to the software world. Um, and then you saw sort of the agile community. I mean, we're, what, 20 years into to, to agile? You know, I, I I see customers. It's, it's interesting. On some respects, I see a lot of progress, I mean, in terms of the term, the adoption. But I've also in the last number of years seen some opportunities to get back to sort of basic agile and not and not overcomplicated and not over everything. You know, it's funny we even get called in engagements like we need to return to the agile principles. Somewhere along the way, the spirit of agility has gotten usurped by ceremonies and tools. Yep. Do you see that in your sort of travels? Um, yeah, I think that that's that's. 
it's a very powerful observation. Um, I, I've always been a huge fan of the Agile Manifesto and that even before that, that was signed, I remember working before that with a lot of the XP and, and, and different techniques. And, and, and you could see the difference, but I remember going to, I think it was Agile 2008, and I remember thinking, this is kind of weird. There's a lot of stuff that's really not that important software development. And you see that continuing through. Um, and you know, people obsessing over story points and, you know, all this kind of, you just thinking like people have completely lost focus of what we're actually turning up and work to do, you know. Um, and sometimes some of the frameworks are important, but what, what everyone kind of, what, what a lot of people miss is the fact there's there's a continuous growth, continuous learning piece of yeah. that. A lot of these frameworks, once you implement it, it's kind of good, but you're supposed to keep changing it, keep moving with it. Even Scrum is kind of, you know, the, the advice for Scrum is, you know, try it and then start changing it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's prescriptive initially to get the, the the concepts and then you should start changing it and evolving it. That's where the retrospective comes in. So that, that little piece has been lost, I think, on many Agile teams. We've got these kind of, um, like the process, please. You're not doing yeah. your stand-up correctly. You're like, ah. <laughs> you know? So um, I think it's problematic. Um, I, I've, I've started writing um, small A agile, which means we, let's actually be have agility in what we're doing and not be big A agile constrained. Yeah. It's interesting. I grew up, I learned XP first from the white yeah. book. And spent, yep. I mean, I spent three or four years before I even discovered Scrum or, or knew what Scrum was. And I, I often wonder, had Kent Beck really wanted to create a methodology and stuck with it, what, what might be different today, the XP? Because, you know, today XP is, quote, unquote, the developer sort of things. You know, it, it's lost the, the method, per se. It's, it's like just what those developers sort of do. Uh, is that what you see, see, as, see as well? Yeah. Or hear as well, I should say. Yeah, yeah completely. And, I mean, I, I remember I, I always look at the – like I said, the Agile conferences, and I started to notice that the, the, the Agile conference and the Agile technical conference, and that always seemed kind of weird. You go to the Agile yeah. technical conference and it's all XP and pairing and TDD and stuff. You go to the Agile conference and it's all about, you know, I don't know, program management and stuff, which is important, but it's, it kind of, it's losing sight of things. And it's, there's a lot of tools in the bigger Agile community. This tool will do whatever. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's 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 definitely um, problematic, and and the one thing I think that has not been solved is actually the the portfolio management of these big agile um, areas. That that's still uh, a problem area, a pro problem area. Sorry. Yeah. No. So, so, what are some of the topics like top of mind these days for you? So you mentioned serverless. I'm assuming that's sort of kind of top of mind. What are the other sort of topics that are you're kind of keeping abreast of and, and, and focusing on these days? You know, for serverless, it's kind of weird. I mean, a lot of people think of serverless compute, like Lambda, but you know, you get serverless data, you get managed services. For me, there's a whole idea of serverless architecture. I think, I don't think the term serverless will last. I think it'll fade away. But it, it's, it's, I think we're at the inflection point of a paradigm shift to a different way of writing software. I think the cloud is going to evolve on to another phase. And today that's serverless, but it's it's a it's a terrible name. So I'm really interested in kind of um, exploring that, and and all and it's very connected to how teams work, how the product focus of teams. So there's a whole new way of creating software that many of us say is is second nature to some of the kind of the bigger digital companies. 
you know, like your Amazons or, or your Googles of this world. But for 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 ninety nine point nine percent of the companies, it's it's completely kind of new. So I think that's a really interesting area, and I still think it's evolving. Um, I love the idea of collaborative networks. I think that's really powerful. The fact that even more so with the way social has gone, these different kind of platforms, it's 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 great to see the strength of the crowd bring something on. You see there's a lot of open source work, um, a lot of different kind of communities. It's, it's incredibly exciting. And you can just dip into kind of networks here and there. And then finally, one thing that I think is is starting to become very interesting, like a hot topic is sustainability with um, relation to uh, software. How can you write sustainable software? Um, I think you can kind of see this in um, a lot of the cloud vendors. I mean, if you think of like a, a sliding scale, I have my own data center. I get in my own tin. I put everything on there. I power that. I do all the work. That, no, that's, that's a fairly large carbon footprint there. And then second, I lift and shift over to um, a public cloud provider and run on their tin, but they'll kind of, you know, they'll run everything for me. So that's not so bad. The third phase, which I think is really interesting, if you start using managed services and different more higher up, more abstract services, then there's a much less carbon footprint. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because you're letting the yeah, cloud yeah. provider do all that kind of um, optimization for you. And I think that leads back into good architecture good kind of reliability, um, performance, security. So there's lots of really solid um, architecture principles that you're kind of starting to see. So I do think, connected to the first thing I said there, that new paradigm shift of writing software, I, I, I predict in kind of the, the resurgence of, of architecture where it becomes so important that you have to design these. Go, go back to the domain-driven stuff with Nick June. Yeah. You have to design your systems well and then make sure they're resilient. Because the whole idea of what you might have seen, you know, years ago, you design a system that's perfect, stable, and works. That's not happening anymore because you're now deploying in a data center and you don't even know where it is. It's somewhere in Western Europe or Eastern USA. It's just it's gone. You've no idea the network, anything else. So you have to design for resiliency. And one of the things that the people are talking about is continuous resiliency. How do we continually make sure that, that you can handle all these failures? I think that's a very different way of writing software than even five, 10 years ago. So I think there's a, and as you can probably tell by the way I'm being quite vague, it's still yeah. emerging and evolving. No, I think, and in, in to that last point, I think, you know, my eyes were open with the chaos community and just what yeah. that is sort of brought to thinking about resiliency. And I think what's special about that community is not just the, the way they're approaching it, but it's also a great small community. It's still sort of um, feels like an XP sort of small small community versus it's kind of gone mainstream, if you will. At least here in the U.S., it's still I mean, yeah. it's still relatively small community. Well, that's the nice thing about you I mean go back to the earlier points about this idea of collaborative networks. You still have core like a lot of people here creating software. They still do it for the love of creating software and they want to learn off each other and they enjoy getting into these open source different communities or collaborative networks and developing these new things. So there is a lot of information being shared. It's sometimes when these things are commercialized or productized, when they start to kind of scale, that that community moves to the next thing. So I think it's really interesting being in those communities and kind of seeing what people are doing. And you see more and more people doing what, what Nick June did, uh, does, and they'll put their stuff in GitHub and say, there you go, there's a whole bunch of stuff, you know, extend it, use it, tell me what you think. 
No, I think it's, it was really exciting. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And so you, you mentioned serverless. When you talk about serverless, it may not be the right term. Do you tend to be like, you mean like a function or functions of service, or do you mean something different? Is, is serverless in your definition broader than just sort of a, a functions of service or? I think it's, yeah, I think it's broader. That's why I think it's a bad term because when, when most people hear the term serverless, they think of serverless compute. Mm-hmm. which then equates to function as a service, which okay. is like, you know, Lambda or Google function or Azure functions, where you can say, you know, I'll write a piece of code, I'll put it in a single function. And then when I call that API, it'll execute and then go away. And I'll, I'll be charged for maybe, you know, whatever amount of invocations. So a lot of people think of that specific function as, as serverless. But really when you step back and think about serverless architecture, how do you, how would you design your entire architecture in that way? Say you have a database, but the database only runs when it's called. So you only get charged per traffic. Uh, you've maybe got an event backbone, which you only get charged for when events are running through it. And maybe based on the amount of events, you could have um, a process orchestration where you only get charged via amount of processes that are orchestrated. So it's all traffic driven not necessarily just you, if you've no traffic. So one of the, the sayings of serverless is don't pay for idle. So if you have no traffic on a Sunday, you don't pay any cost on a Sunday. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's the same concept of the function, but applied to your entire architecture. Interesting. And so, you know, at the architecture level, I imagine it doesn't so much matter whether you're deploying AWS or Azure or GCP, right? They have equivalent or near enough yeah. sort of server. Yeah. But at some level down, you do have to get there. And, you know, often some of the criticisms I've heard of serverless, well, you're more tied into specific vendor. It's harder to, you know, yeah. to, to pick up and port. Like, how do you, you know, part of me is like, I get that, but part of me is like, you're already in there anyway. The, the, the likelihood of you just picking up and moving everything to another provider is not something you probably do, you know, that often anyway. Like, how do you respond to that when, when I mean, do you agree that the more serverless you go, that it's the more potential for lock-in, and then how do you mitigate that from an architecture perspective if portability is a concern of yours? Well, Amazon are great saying that they mean they talk about evolutionary architecture. They make sure architecture decisions are two-way doors. It's not a one-way door. So if you decide uh-huh. to do something, you can back out of it at another, at another time. So if you have a really strict kind of um, um, if your separation is quite good between microservices and domains, you can say, well, I want to maybe take that out and plug in something else. Not as simple as that, but that that you know don't have a don't don't have a mess of dependencies that, that constrain you. But uh, vendor lock-in is fascinating. You're always locked into something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're, it doesn't matter who it is, if it's an open source thing or a vendor or a play, you're always locked into something, a language. So you need to be really careful what you're locking into. Um, but the first for me, the the, the, the the first concern is, can we create value for our business? So if you can say like, okay, we need to get that to market by the end of the year, but I don't, I'd like to avoid end locking. So we're going to miss that deadline. So we're going to be six months late. So now we don't have any vendor lock-in. And then your business say, well, okay, well, we just lost a couple of million dollars to avoid vendor lock-in. Well, how much money is that going to make us? You do, well, something might happen in the future. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? So I think you've got to, you've got to weigh that up. Um, I, I always think that the way I, I, I 
respond to that question is, is the cost of maybe re-architecting that component greater than the cost of making it vendor neutral? Hmm. Do you know, could you, yeah. if something if something horrendous happened and the cloud, you had to move off that, that cloud provider, you know, how long would it take you to, to refactor or maybe rewrite certain things, remove them across? And if you've designed your architecture well, it would be possible. It wouldn't be impossible. Now, it would need to be a fairly significant event to have you to yeah. do that. But I don't know. But even one of the things that's also quite an alarming kind of statement that, that people don't say as much now, like, but around multi-cloud. If I have my workload running AWS and I'll just automatically shift it over to Google, that, that, that's never going to happen. It's like yeah. a completely different paradigm. So even if you're running on Docker and you can shift it from Docker here, Docker over there, lots of different concerns it's not that simple yeah no trust me i hear from some of my customers like okay we want to have an aws and just seamlessly switch it over and i'm just like to myself laughing like if, if you think that's your biggest problem then <laughs> if it, it's something like, i think it's a good question to ask from a risk mitigation yeah. to say well you know if something happens with this cloud provider could we move to that cloud provider i think that's a great that's an important conversation to have and what would that look like you know, from a just from a, 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 a business risk mitigation perspective. But if you're designing that in as a requirement, I would seriously ask why you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so let me ask you, what are you? Um, what are some of those lessons? If you had to depart on our audience, some sort of lessons as they go about trying to maybe adopt some of this more you know, serverless architecture approach um, to sort of their problems. What are some of the lessons that you would sort of impart? So one of one of the, the, the big ones that for many of my teams we always we talked about constantly was the code is a liability. I think this is mm -hmm. code the code is not the asset. If you had a team working for a year creating something, that those that million lines of code is not the asset. The system that they created is the asset. The code is a liability. You want as little code as possible. A lot of my engineer peers are currently throwing daggers at me. It's like, <laughs> it, you're not saying we're not writing code anymore. It's just like, yeah. think very carefully before you sit and knock out a few thousand lines of code because there's a cost to maintain that. There's a cost to secure it. There's a cost to run it. So there's a cost with code. So you better to sit and figure out, well, let's, let's, let's write this piece because this is, this is a, the, you know, the, this is a game changer. That other, you know, many thousands of lines of generated, like, you know, template code, let's try and get, get around that. So that idea of code as liability, I think is really important for your architects and engineers to have. The answer to every problem isn't let's write some code. <laughs> so I think that's really important. Um, I think as well with, with some of the, the wordly mapping stuff, and I, it's a complex technique, but one of the, the nice parts of it is there's, there's a lot of, it's about identifying points of inertia and points of movement. Where are things going to evolve? and what points of inertia will stop things evolving. So you may write something today and say, well, you know, in a year's time, we'll just be using something else because that, that's only a temporary thing. Understand that and then understand what are the points of inertia that could stop you moving that. I think about, you know, um, people writing um, uh, like web frameworks, etc. You know, if you get invested in a, in a web framework that's very popular today and maybe it, it, it moves on, but that's going to be an inertia point because you can't get out of that. So I think you need to identify your points of inertia and what's going to move. I think that's really important. And then finally, I always think when, when writing software, you need to kind of meet people where they are. 
You can't come in to opinionated and say, right, this is we're going serverless and we're going cloud and that's that. You know, this this is what it is. I think it's always important to be. It's almost like um um like a software kind of anthropologist going kind of observe what kind of that's happening, see what the kind of lie of the land is, and see what how can we create a system that will work in this business context. And sometimes it's not the latest technology. It's it's usually a smorgasbord of things that you think will work, but I think you have to come and meet people where they are. Um, I think that's for me that's the most important thing. Just that kind of you know create a shared understanding with the people you're writing the system with, and yeah. write the best thing that will that will kind of you know what, what's good enough to solve that problem. And don't be yeah. too opinionated on using the latest technology just just because. We call it sometimes resume driven design, right? It's yeah. like whenever I, I'm I'm going to find a way to to learn a new tool and find a way to to shove it into here, whether it's needed or not. Um, it, it's no, funny. I, 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 I teach design thinking and the empathy. Is, is a yeah. big part of design thinking. It touches on your last point. And that's something that I've, at times I've, we've had engineers, I've just seen in my career, you know, some of them just want to look at a story and hold up by themselves and, 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 and write code. And there's so much more when you can connect them directly with the person who's going to be using the software and you can have them sit down and observe what it's like for them to go through a, a day in their life. Um, and what, what we have learned and I've learned is that may be hard for some um, folks, but there's a lot of joy that comes out when you create software and you can see the person actually using it. You can, if you get it right, their eyes light up and they don't have to deal with this old system and all the workarounds. And there's a lot of value in that one because otherwise yeah. you're just kind of, to your point, you're kind of just working by yourself. You don't even see who uses the system. I think that there's a lot that we in the engineering community can learn about getting closer to our, our end users and, and learning more about, you know, observation and empathy and these sort of techniques yeah definitely i mean um, um one of the big things that i'm reading something yesterday in social media and there was a comment about um should you give your engineers the business context and the answer is yes yes, yes and yes, yes yeah. because you know if your engineer understands you know what the users are doing what the business problem is they, they may see something that you've missed they say, well, why not? We could do this. So you give the engineer the context, and there's maybe things that they can see that no one else could see. Because they, well, we we can make that faster if we do this, you know. So I think that's and, and there's such you'll get a better solution, you'll get a more cost-effective solution, and plus the engineer will be better job satisfaction, better can employee engagement because you're you're seeing the impact of your work. Yeah, and, th- and that's related to you know, the movement of, of defining what are your outcomes and then letting, yeah. getting out of the way and letting the team focus on those versus getting very prescriptive and to, to these are the stories and, you know, these are sort of the tasks. Um, yeah, and bringing it, bring it back around, that's properly agile. It's like, yeah, don't worry about is. the process. It's let's figure out the outcome and let's do it, you know, in a sensible and effective manner. And all these things about tasks, backlogs, points, whatever, mm-hmm. they're all mechanisms to help people get to the outcome. Which yeah. is kind of what you were playing earlier on. People have kind of lost sight of that a little. Yeah. Have you heard of Tom Gill? Does that name ring a bell? Um, yes. Yes. So, so Tom came on the program a couple of weeks back. That's how I learned some of this. And, and Tom was influential, wasn't really part of the Agile movement, but was influenced it. And his whole point yeah. was incremental delivery of value. And he's very, yeah. very explicit about this. And then, you know, Tom B and Tom said somewhere along the way, incremental delivery of value got replaced with incremental delivery of code. And that's yes. not what we ever intended. Yeah. But what happened with Agile is it got to, and that to CI and CD, and it, it was it, it's positive, but they're at the wrong increment. It's yeah. about the value increment, not not necessarily the, the code increment. 
Absolutely. And then you see a lot of people like, you know, struggling with, well, how do we define value? And, mm-hmm. and my response to that is, well, if, if we're unclear what the value is for the software team, let's figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. if we don't know what we're doing or why it's valuable, that we, we need that we need to answer that question because we can't measure success if we're not sure what's valuable. Yeah, and, and back to your point on codes of liability, I think that's I think that's perfect. I think isn't in the agile community somewhere along the way we, we lost um, not the ability, but we lost focus on architecture and design. It went from two architecture and design back when I was coming of age, all the UML diagrams and, and yeah. the, all those sort of things before you even <clears throat> write a line of code. And then it kind of switched too much to we got a story, let's just start cranking code and we'll sort of architect it as we go. And I think that hopefully what we're coming back to is a little bit of a, of a balance. And I think that to your point, if you view code as a liability, then you, you know you architect now to save time later. You know, yeah. if, if you think about architecture right, it should be, if I architect it right, I should reduce the amount of code or have the minimum amount of code. Um, and if you view it as a liability, not as something fun to do in an asset, then maybe it does help you sort of reorient like, what are you producing? Yeah. Are you just cranking more code out or, or not? So Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I think architecture is really interesting. It's, it's not about the role of the architect. It's not a phase of the life cycle. This is now the architecture phase. It's it's a property of what you're building, you know? So at any point in time, someone will say it will assess the architecture. Um, and, and these things are actually very well defined, various different well-architected frameworks, etc. cetera. Uh, so you can actually assess the quality of the architecture, just like in a building, you know, you could have a beautiful building, but it's just about to fall down. Um, you know, so, you, it's, so it should be, a, it's, it's a responsibility of the team who are building that. And sometimes you love external architecture, maybe we'll review that or check it or whatever way. But architecture is part of what the team does. And it's 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 the it's this pushback against big design up front became no design. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Which is not the answer. Yeah, you're right. So this has been an awesome conversation. So I want to wrap it up. Last thing is what are you listening to these days? Oh, music wise. Um, <laughs> um a couple of things I've I tend to a lot of kind of deep focus work. So I'm listening to some crazy kind of soundscape, people like Max Richter and stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Listen to a lot of old soul and R&B, which is good fun. Um, nice. Always like kind of soul. And then the odd time I'd listen to um, um, my for a walk, Christy Moore. It's a nice kind of Irish, lots of traditional Irish songs. So if you haven't heard Christy Moore, I would strongly recommend looking right. up on Spotify. Some right, real we'll cool. Irish ballads. Well, cool. We're going to put it in the, in the notes for this and share it out with everybody. So, um, David, I, I so much thank you so much for coming on the program. It's re- great to see you again and reconnect. And um, best of luck in your next endeavor. I know you won't um, stay without for long, so looking forward to staying in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure being on. Thank All right. you. All right. Take care. See you. 